This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're tuned in to Morning Run at BFM 89.9. This is Spotlight, and I'm Simui Boon. The Pakatan Harapan government announced the Shared Prosperity Vision 2030 in early October. It's a document that outlines goals to restructure Malaysia's low-skill labour-intensive economy to a knowledge-based economy, where her citizens will enjoy a decent standard of living. Its main emphasis is the commitment to make Malaysia a nation that achieves sustainable growth along with fair and equitable distribution across income groups, regions and ethnicities. However, as we move forward to try to achieve these goals, it is important not to forget a segment of society that has been severely marginalised over the years. The ethnic Indian community, especially the B40 segment, is plagued by a myriad of social, developmental and economic issues. Income inequality is highest among the Indians, with 81% of Indians only having 3 months savings at the most. Indians also only make up a meagre 4% of university entries between 2014 and 2015. The community is further compounded by a subculture of violence and gang-related crimes, brought about by structural issues relating to discrimination. For the most part, many of them have the same story to tell, one of poverty, hopelessness, inability to find jobs, and to put food on the table for their families. But just how did they get here? As you may be aware, the Indians were brought in as uh, labourers into this country by the British government. They were mainly in the plantations. P. Wetamuti is a minister in the Prime Minister's Department in charge of national unity and social well-being. He's well-known among Malaysian Indians as the founder of the Hindu Rights Action Force, or Hindraf. And earlier this year, he founded the Malaysian Advancement Party, a political party representing the Indian community in Malaysia. I spoke to him earlier this month at his office in Putrajaya. Their um, conditions of living were poor and they served this country for more than 200 years. And then... After independence, the British government left the Indians behind and they continued to be in the plantations up to about 1970s onwards when uh, rubber price fell and uh, those plantations were acquired by government as well as sold off by private entities for development purposes and these people were displaced from the plantations. Based on study conducted by independent bodies, uh, they could confirm that Easily 800,000 Indians were displaced from the plantations from 1970s onwards. Is easily, probably, at that point of time, uh, more than half uh, or close to half the Indian populations. Now, as we all know, uh, displacement happens for reasons, either a natural calamity, war, um, etc. But in this case, it was uh, none of those factors. It was... Uh, Economic, purely economic. However, when they became displaced, issues closely related to displacement, new job opportunities, housing and education were not taken care of by the government then. And as a result of which, they became a fragmented society. There was no housing for them. And hence, you would have heard that Indians built uh, illegal settlements all over the country. There are places of uh, worship that were in the plantations for more than 200 years were demolished. Indians are very closely associated with their places of worship. Uh, when they build their new settlements, you know, 
uh, on lands that are available, either private lands or wherever in the fringes of the city, uh, they build their temples. And hence, uh, everything about Indians were known to be illegal. Their housing were illegal, they occupied the land illegally, they build the temples illegally. And to add on that, it is fair to say that most of the Indians from the plantations were not exposed to the outside world. And probably most of them uh, in 1957, when the country achieved independence, probably most of them uh, did not probably realize that the country has achieved independence. When they lived in the plantations, nobody bothered to register their marriages and register their births with the national registration departments. And hence, uh, they were not registered. They legally do not exist. But eventually, when they were in the fringes of the cities after the displacement, Suddenly, there is a need for them to go to school, you know, because when they were in the plantations, they were in the Tamil schools. But now, when they come out from the plantation, they can't enroll their children in the schools. They themselves and their children are unable to avail themselves to the health services available because they don't have identification cards. So these problems uh, continue into the next generation and next generations. But how was this displacement allowed? It's not like it was a few dozen people that were secretly being displaced. This was thousands upon thousands of people. Did no one notice this? Piwetamudi tells us what he thinks. It happened over a period of time. It began in 1970. Uh, it was at the peak in the 80s, right up to the study I told you was conducted, I think, in the year 2000. Uh, so up to year 2000, the, the period, uh, a study done uh, over a 30-year period found that 800,000 people were displaced. Now, um, I would say most people did not realize what happened to the Indians. That's why I keep on saying um, wherever I go that the Indian community uh, is probably the most misunderstood society. Uh, people tend to make uh, remarks. Everything about Indians are illegal. So it was not known uh, to the public. To be fair, even I didn't know about it even though I've been actively involved in the issues pertaining to the Indian community, but I didn't understand until much, much later when I could put the jigsaw puzzle together and understand what actually transpired. Okay, so where are they now, these displaced Indians? What has become of them? Piwe Tamuti shed some light. Um, I would say uh, they, they fell into a dire state. They fell into such state, many uh, lived in very poor conditions. They are crammed uh, in, in, in uh, um, flats. Two or three families live in small flats. Uh, this is common among the Indian community. Um, again, I, I would say that is why sometimes I don't agree with the official figure that the uh, household income of the Indian community it shows a high figure. That is because probably two or three families live. I've seen many, many in my journey. I've seen many, many families living together. Uh, most of the Indians uh, are laborers when they were displaced. You know, they could only do manual jobs. And for those without identification documents, without ICs, are uh, even exploited further. They end up working as cheap labor. Uh, they even get paid lesser than the foreigners who are in the country. I have met many of them uh, out of no choice. They are doing it. 
and the cycle of poverty continues to their children as a result of which they are unable to send their children to schools and then the children start getting jobs at an early age they become school dropouts and they themselves do uh, labor jobs many youths who were in the early days of uh, displacement many youths who were not able to find jobs got themselves involved in the life of crime uh, again that is a form of exploitation because the people in, involved in crimes know that uh, these are uh, easy targets can be easily recruited into the world of crime uh, and uh, if you look historically before 70s you wouldn't have heard of indian gangs in the early 70s even you know you you would have hardly heard uh, of um, indians committing major robberies and all that they were recruited into doing illegal activities you know hijacking drug uh, couriers and so forth and uh, many of them are dragged into the life of crime and hence it continues i'm most worried that the life of crime is actually going into the second generation which we have to stop we can't allow the second generation to take over the life of crime that their parents or their father also committed There was Pee Wetamuti, a minister in the Prime Minister's department in charge of national unity and social well-being, talking about how a segment of the Malaysian Indian community became one of the most displaced communities in the world during the 70s after being abandoned by the plantations they've known all their lives and what became of them after. After this, we delve in deeper to some of the main social issues which plague the B40 segment of the ethnic Indian community. Stay tuned to the Spotlight here on Morning Run BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to the Morning Run at BFM 89.9. This is Spotlight and I'm Simwee Boon. On today's show, we take a look at a community that has been severely marginalised over the years. The ethnic Indian community, especially the B40 segment, is a community that's plagued with various issues of social, developmental, and economic nature. What has been done to address it? Earlier in the show, we learned that many of these issues stem from decades of history. They were brought over by the British to work in the plantations, and when the Industrial Revolution took place in the 1970s here in Malaysia, many of them were abandoned, leaving a large community of ethnic Indians displaced and in poverty. In 2017, uh, the early administration released a report called the Malaysian Indian Blueprint. K.R. Mugam is a social rights activist and a director at Suara Rakyat Malaysia. He's also the advisor of the Tamil Foundation. I spoke to him on the phone as he explains to me more on the social issues faced by the ethnic Malaysian Indian community, especially the B40 segment. That the document is quite important in the sense that uh, it contains... Uh, adequate information as to the status of Indians in Malaysia as of that time, 2017, that's just two years back. In, in that report, they actually captured uh, substantial information as to the status of Indians. Like, for example, they actually uh, figured out something like, if you take all the Indians and, and something like about 227,000 households, they get only about uh, below 2,672 ringgit per month. That means the household income of these 227,000 families is, is low. 
They found that 82% of them are debt-ridden. That means uh, they are living in borrowings. So you have a segment of Indians, and these people are living, living in debt, and uh, you want to look at them from uh, like uh, like income levels. It, it doesn't solve the issues because once you are living in debt, you are actually living in negative territory. So the income doesn't make any impact into the overall life. And then they also found that something like of the 227,000, 25,000 of the households earn income that is less than 1,000 ringgit per month. The B40 group, only 3% of them are, are owning houses. The, the remaining of them are either living in squatters or urban settlers or, or low-cost housing or somewhere. 72% of the identified gang members are Indian. <laughs> That's very, very, very high. Gangsterism in Malaysia is dominated by Indians. And then the police also attribute 31% of the violent crimes to, to Indian gangsters. And this also correlates to uh, dropout uh, rates in schools. We can't look at it this as, a, okay, Indians are prone to gangsterism. That's not the truth. The truth is it originates from the, the sufferings of the underclass. From there, these children are unable to move into the mainstream simply because the education is not suited to actually provide them the type of education needed to push them or motivate them to sustain education continuously to earn a skill to join the the, the mainstream. That is not, not that is not there. The previous administration, to me, I think they they were trying to do quite a bit for the Indians, particularly prior to the to the elections, last elections, 2016, 2017, because the Indian issues relation to Tamil schools and uh, and uh, the programs that they wanted. I think the, the the government actually allocated substantial funds for the Indian community to carry out programs and things like that. I think they formed the SADIC and all that. They were actually moved in a, in a, in a direction, and that they are the ones who actually released the Malaysian Indian Blueprint for Action, uh, though we, we termed it as a kind of a ele- election gimmick. But notwithstanding that, I think there were, in fact, uh, massive allocations for, for programs and Tamil schools. But when Pakatan Harapan's government contested the election and then came up with the 25 initiatives uh, to help Indians, they were actually good uh, in the sense that it contained substantial uh, intervention strategies incorporated into how Indian community can take benefit and join the mainstream development. But I think his handicap is whether the government is fully uh, committed to provide them needed resources for the, that kind of action. Notwithstanding that, it cannot be an issue of just passing to one Indian minister and saying that, okay, you solve Indian problems. It can't. We need proper, adequate resource allocation and uh, government machinery to push for it. Otherwise, it, it will never materialize. You can't just blame, put one Indian and then say, that, okay, now you are responsible for Indian issues. It's not like that. Country as a whole must look at not just Indians for that matter, Anyone who is living in poverty and living in debt and uh, not enjoying the type of lifestyle that we deserve to live in a country which is heading towards a new developed status. K. Arumugam, social right activist and director Swaram. He also authored a book on the 2001 Kampung Medan incident which involved sectarian violence between the Indian and Malay community. When Pakatan Harapan campaigned for the 14th general election last year, the coalition's manifesto contained 25 pledges aimed at addressing issues related to the ethnic Indian community with a variety of promises looking to uplift them. After 
slightly more than a year in office, what has been done? We are now under the new government. We are now drawing out plans. Um, as you know, uh, it has been slightly more than uh, one year since we took over. P. Wetamuti is a minister in the Prime Minister's Department in charge of national unity and social well-being. He's well-known among Malaysian Indians for his domestic and international campaigns to fight discriminations against Malaysian Hindus. I sat down with him at his office in Putrajaya earlier this month. Uh, I have been given the mandate to look after the Indian unit, which was previously known as SEDIC. Uh, we have rebranded it as Mitra. So when I took over SEDIC, I found that there has been uh, misuse of funds, no transparency in award of uh, grants to either NGOs and other entities to carry out programs. And uh, in fact, the, even the audit report found that uh, there was a major abuse of funds um, that was allocated to the Indian community. It is difficult, uh, but my, my main focus, uh, our focus now, is to concentrate in eradicating poverty. So um, I have had discussions with uh, not only the civil servants in Mitra, but I have had uh, various discussions with successful people, uh, successful businessmen, bankers, economists. Uh, there are many kind-hearted people out there who are willing to uh, assist the government and assist me uh, in formulating uh, policies, formulating plans to, to uplift the Indian community. Um, as of June onwards, we have been carrying out uh, um, programs, we have been rolling out programs, and uh, uh, it, 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 is, it is a long way to go for the Indian community. Uh, over the last 60, um, 61 years, I would say, uh, there was no proper system in place for the Indian community. What we have successfully done now is we have created a system uh, which is transparent, and uh, all information are available on the Mitra website. SEDIC has been rebranded as Mitra. Uh, the information is clearly available on the website. And we are identifying good entities, good NGOs, who we could collaborate and work together to ensure that the funds given by the government can be channeled to them and they in turn carry out good and genuine programs that will benefit the community. P. Wetamuti, Minister in the Prime Minister's Department in charge of national unity and social well-being, talking about the challenges he faces in addressing the issues of the ethnic Indian community, having to correct past mistakes, and working with constrained resources. So, what are the other challenges faced by this marginalised community, especially as we head into the next four years of Pakatan Harapan's administration? Social rights activist K. Arumugam tells me more. I think the biggest challenge in, is two. One is the Indian community itself, that's one. Second one is, is the government uh, commitment. The Indian community itself is, is one because I think, I think the Indian community uh, need to look at it from a non-divisive approach of addressing how as a community can, can build itself in an interdependent mode and uh, look at its role as a, as a progressive move towards assisting uh, within itself to see how much uh, of that can actually move the Indian community. Like, for example, the Tamil school system is actually has, has moved away from a kind of a status of being an unattractive situation to a very attractive situation because now Tamil schools produce good, good students. A lot of middle-class 
parents are start sending their children to Tamil schools. That is because not because the government wanted to create a Tamil school system that that, has, that can excel, but I think the community participated very much into building a, uh, an excellent Tamil school system. As of now, I mean we can't compare with Chinese school system, but we can proudly say that the Tamil school system is doing much better than much much better for the Indian children attending Tamil school than same Indian children attending uh, SK schools. So like that, that, that it is internal to the community itself whether they can come together to address social issues so that we can do something. The other one is, of course, the government need to play its role because the government is the mover of economic functions and uh, strategies and policies. Where are they going to get the get get jobs? Where are they going to get the higher income? And uh, are we going to continue to uh, provide with low wages, which is uh, the the kind of wage which is insufficient to run a family. So the government has to be re- re- looked into retraining, reskilling uh, people so that they can fit into the new economy of uh, of high high income status. Otherwise, uh, the community in, in itself is impossible for it to move the Indian community. That was K. Arumugam, a director at Swaram and social rights activist. He also authored a book on the 2001 Kampung Medan incident that involved sectarian violence between the Malays and the Indians. In Budget 2020, the government announced that Mitra, the Malaysian Indian Transformation Unit, would receive 100 million ringgit in funding to improve the socio-economic situation, skills development, health, education and women empowerment of the Indian community, as well as 20 million ringgit in loans for Indian community entrepreneurs. While over the years, many organisations and individuals have made much efforts to help uplift the B40 segment of the ethnic Indian community, more still needs to be done. And while a specific roadmap to address the issues brought to light seems to be lacking, only time will tell if the government and the country can help uplift this misunderstood community. Thank you for listening. This has been Spotlight and I'm Simri Boon for The Morning Run, BFM 89.9.